Good morning, everybody. I've got a handout coming around to you that will help, I think, uh, to sort of visualize what we're looking at today, but also give you a point of reference that you can take with you uh, beyond just, just today. As we work through our, our study, and we're still in this sort of the introduction to our confession of faith, and one of the most helpful things to me, and I went back and looked at my, my notes, it was actually in December of 2012, when I was first introduced to this material. This is Dr. Jim Renahan's work. It's, it's based on a seminary class that he had taught for, by that point, probably 20 years, where he had developed an outline, a big picture outline of the confession. Uh, we have 32 chapters in our confession. We have a ten- temptation, a tendency maybe, to think that these are all disconnected, or they just are sequential chapters, and they're not necessarily connected together. And that's, that's contrary to the intent of the confession, but it's also contrary to a, the most useful way to read our confession. And when he presented this top-level outline, I don't want to oversell this, but to me, it was, it was just light bulbs popped off in my head. I was able to understand better the confession as a whole, and as a result, understand better the individual chapters and parts of it to see how everything fits together. So that's what I want to present today is this top-level outline. Let me me pray and ask for the Lord's help for us as we go through this. And may it be a blessing uh, to you as as you learn more and more how to use this confession as as a guide to your own understanding of the Scriptures, but also as, as a tool to you with respect to apologetics, with respect to helping your children, understanding the faith once delivered to the saints, helping you to communicate with coworkers and family members and neighbors and, and the things that are most surely believed among us. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help, and, and then we'll dive in. Our Father and our God, we, we give you thanks in the precious name of your Son for your faithfulness to us in every age. Lord Jesus, you promised upon your departure that you would send the Helper, that you would send your Spirit to come among your people and to lead your people, lead first your apostles and then all of your people into all of the truth. And we give you thanks that these things have been written down for us in your word and that these things have been synthesized and summarized and and clearly worded for us in these historic creeds and confessions. And we pray that the study of those uh, would, would in no way in our minds be a substitute for your word, but rather a help and a guide that we can understand your word more clearly and to understand it more more faithfully. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So in in your handout, I want to just to to help you understand what I've put in your hands. There are, broadly speaking, Dr. Renahan has organized the confession, well, I should say he has, I think, or identified the organization of the confession into four major sections. The first one is what's known as first principles. And this is, this is the subject of our study together right now, is looking at the first, uh, the first six chapters of our confession. These are the fundamental articles of, of our Christian and Reformed faith. And then in chapters 7 to 20, this is the largest section, in the confession, what, what he has titled the covenant. And, and I'll look at those in, in a moment in, in more detail to see how these things break out. 
And then the third section is chapters 21 to 30, God-centered living. And, and he subtitled this Freedom and Boundaries. Uh, liberty of conscience is central to our Christian faith, and with that comes freedom, but that freedom is not unbounded. That freedom does not come without duty and responsibility. So we'll look at how that fleshes itself out. And then the final two chapters constitute uh, what might be called eschatology, the world to come, the, the last things. B.B. Warfield, of course, is a, he's a Presbyterian, and so he's writing about the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster is, is uh, a first cousin of our Confession of Faith. Uh, many of the words are identical. The structure is nearly identical. And describing the Westminster Confession of Faith, he says the architectonic principle. Do you hear that word architectonic? Archi- you hear the word architect in there? This is the design. It's, it's, it's a, like a, a schematic or an architectural plan. So he's saying the, architect, uh, the architectonic principle of the Westminster Confession is supplied by the schematization of federal or covenant theology, which, has, which had obtained by this time in Britain, as on the continent, a dominant position as the most commodious mode of presenting the corpus of Reformed doctrine. In other words, the Westminster Confession was organized according to a covenantal scheme, a covenantal blueprint. And it's designed to reflect what the Reformers believed, and we we concur, is that the Scriptures themselves are organized according to a covenantal structure. And we see God working with his people through a series of covenants, first with Adam, then with Noah, then with Noah for all of the the creation, and then with, with Abraham. And that covenant recapitulated or restated with Isaac and then Jacob, and then the covenant with Moses, then the covenant with David, and then the the new covenant inaugurated through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these built upon an eternal covenant that existed between the Father and the Son, the covenant of redemption. So the, the covenant is the organizing principle of the entire confession. So as, as a consequence of that, if we think about the scriptures being covenantal in its structure, that means that, that every subsequent period of revelation that God gives to his people is building upon the previous so we look at the Pentateuch, for example, the first five books of the Bible. Then we, so we, we see these God in his, in his creation, his dealings with, with all mankind, then his dealings with Abraham, calling a particular people for himself, and then, of course, calling his people out of Egypt through the, the mediating work of Moses and instituting a new covenant, them going into the promised land. But then by the time we get to David, we have a new, a new covenant, we have new revelation. There are things that David understood redemptively that Moses wasn't privy to. And so the, the scriptures build upon themselves as God's revelation progressively unfolds. Well, that same structure is in, in, in some ways mirrored or mimicked in the confession of faith in the way it's structured. The consequence of that is that we, when we read and study the confession, we need to recognize that every chapter builds on what was said previously and it anticipates what's going to come next. So just as we see that, that, that Moses and the prophets, according to Jesus, testified about what was to come in him. And so Jesus said, for example, on the road to Emmaus, that mo- beginning with Moses and the prophets, he spoke to these disciples all things concerning himself. 
So the old covenant anticipated what would come in the new, and the new covenant reveals all that was concealed or veiled in the old covenant. In a similar way, each chapter of our confession unfolds more and more of our doctrine. It builds upon what was already stated, and it anticipate, each chapter anticipates what's going to come with further um, clarification and, and expansion as the confession opens up. So here's one of the interpretive principles that I alluded to last week, is that in each, chap, each section, you know, we have four sections, one begins with chapter 1, then chapter 7, then chapter 21, and chapter 31. The leading chapter in each section lays down the overall doctrine of that entire section. And then the remaining chapters in that section sort of flesh out what was stated in that first chapter. So, for example, under the heading of first principles, the very first chapter is the chapter on the Word of God. We, we assert in chapter 1 what we believe about God's written revelation, his special revelation to his people, and then upon that written revelation, we are able to build our doctrine of God, our doctrine of the fall, our doctrine of creation and providence, our doctrine of the covenant, everything that, fall, that comes after that. And so this is also mostly true when you get to an individual chapter. Any particular individual chapter, ordinarily, it's not 100% of the time, but ordinarily the first paragraph in that chapter describes in general terms what the doctrine is in that chapter, and then the, the preceding or the subsequent paragraphs flesh that out and give us a little bit more detail. So let's think about the actual outline itself. And in, in you'll, you'll see in your handout, the first principles, chapters 1 through 6. Notice that, of course, the very first chapter is the scriptures. Then the next two chapters have to deal with the doctrine of God. Theology, what we could call theology proper, is in chapter 2. This is, in our confession of faith, entitled, Of God and the Holy Trinity. So it, it, we confess from the scriptures what God has revealed about himself. But there's, so that's God's nature, but we also see God's eternal plan in chapter 3, God's decree. And so chapter 3 asserts that from before God created anything, in eternity, God purposed all things to come to pass, including even the fall, including the redemption of a particular people, and including the election of specific individuals to life, the election of angels to eternal life, and some angels to eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 deal with creation. Chapter 4 deals specifically with the doctrine of creation itself. For example, we confess that God made all that is, the earth and everything in it, all of the, the, the universe he made in the space of six days. Those are 24-hour solar days. Yes, we are literal creationists in our, our confession. We, we hold to a six-day creation. So that's chapter 4. Then how does God execute his decree? God from eternity purposed all things that would come to pass. And he does so. He orders his, he carries out that decree by two means. One, through creation itself. He made the world and everything in it. And then also by his providence. 
The doctrine of providence asserts that God makes use of means and that he causes everything from the least to the greatest to work out according to his eternal decree. And then the sixth chapter is the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. So we see the doctrine of sin. How do we explain evil in the world? How do we explain the the condition of man that even other unbelievers can discern? We we are able to discern, even unbelievers are able to discern, that, that men often do very wicked things to one another. How do we explain that? Because if, you, if you're in, in apologetics, if you're, if you're working, studying in that, in that discipline, or you are engaging in that, that practice, either formally or informally, you won't get more than about 37 seconds into that before someone asks you, what's the cause of evil? How can we explain evil? And, and the question that often comes up is, why do bad things happen to good people? You certainly, you've, you've heard that question. Well, we, we have an explanation from the scriptures. Uh, I like Dr. R.C. Sproul's answer the best. Why do, good things, why do bad things happen to good people? He says that's only happened once. It only happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us are, according to the scriptures, not good. And so to say that, that bad things have happened to good people, that's only really happened once. But there is a, a, a further answer, and a legitimate answer, that there are things that happen to us that are not a direct consequence of one specific sin. So somebody's home could be obliterated by a tornado. Can we say, well, aha, they must have sinned, that's why the tornado came. Well, Jesus dealt with that question, didn't he? His apostles were asking about this, and and Jesus referenced a, a particular tower that had fallen and said, basically, if you don't repent, the same outcome is going to happen to everyone who fails to repent. But it wasn't because of this. The, the apostles ask, or the disciples that ask him, when they, with respect to a blind man, was he born blind because his parents sinned? And Jesus said there's not an immediate cause and effect relationship to those kinds of things. But unless you repent, that all will fall under the judgment of God. So this section of first principles helps us to understand the scriptures is the governing principle for everything that follows after this. The doctrine of God with respect to his nature and his decree, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of sin. This is where we get our, what we could call a biblical anthropology. You want to hazard a guess what that term means, biblical anthropology? You want to take a guess? Yeah. It's our biblical doctrine of man. What do we know from the scriptures about man? Well, he was born, he was created innocent and upright and in fellowship with God, and he had a, and he had a perfect law. Do this and live, and don't do that or you will perish and die. But man transgressed that covenant. Now, because of Adam, all of Adam's offspring will carry that stain and mark of sin. So we call that original sin. Uh, David said, "From in, in sin my mother conceived me. He doesn't mean that the act of conception was sinful. What he's saying is from the moment of conception, his nature was sinful. And then, of course, because of that sinful nature, men also do sinful and wicked things. We, see, we, the Bible tells us that it is 
it is the case that we do sinful things because we are sinners. It is not the case that we are sinners because we do sinful things. Do you hear the difference? It is from a polluted well that polluted water comes. It is not the polluted water that makes the well polluted. You see? So that's our first principles. The second section, this is the largest section, deals with the covenant. And Dr. Renahan has, has, has titled this section in the outline, beginning in chapter 20, The Covenant. And in chapter 7, we see the covenant defined. And this begins, of course, with, with an eternal covenant, a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And that is executed in time through a series of further steps. And in, in chapter 7 of our confession, again, this is the beginning chapter in a larger section. And then when we look at the beginning paragraph in that beginning chapter, we see something that's profound. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, when we think about the question, what separates man from God? Sin? That's, that's a true answer. But it's not a sufficient answer. See, Adam and Eve, even in their state of innocency, were separated from God. Now, they walked with God in the cool of the day, they had communion with God, but they were still separate from God. What, 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 what made them separate? They were creatures. They were created beings. There is a distinction between the creator and the creature that is so vast, that is so big, that is so incomprehensible, that unless God voluntarily condescended in some way, unless God came down to his creatures, they could have no contact with him. They would have no fellowship with him. They would have no union with him. So even Adam and Eve, in their, before sin entered the world, before they sinned, God needed to deal with them by way of a covenant. There had to be some terms of the creator having fellowship with his creature. It was, it was a covenant of works. And that's what our confession asserts in, in chapter 7 and paragraph 1, is that it is, in fact, a covenant of works. Even though the word covenant of works doesn't appear, this is a covenant of works. Because there was a reward of life if you obeyed the covenant, and there was a threat of death if you disobeyed the covenant. See, that's a covenant of works. If there is a reward if you do it, and there's a sanction or penalty if you don't do it, that's a covenant of works. That cannot be a covenant of grace. Then it says in paragraph 2, moreover. Okay, so we have this, we have this gulf, we have this chasm, we have this 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 distance between God and man because of the creator and creature distinction. Then in paragraph 2, we confess this. Moreover, in addition to that chasm, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able 
to believe. See, now we're already seeing some clues being sort of deposited here. Threads that will be picked up later on. That phrase, willing and able to believe. We, we know by virtue of man's fall, again, already looking back in the confession a little bit to, chapter, to the previous chapter in chapter 6, from this original corruption whereby they are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgression. So because of the fall, man is now unable, in, in fact, unwilling, to seek after God and obey God. And now God has <clears throat> made a covenant of grace where he offers sinners life and by his Holy Spirit makes them willing and able to believe. So that's why this chapter is foundational for all that comes after it. And let's look at what comes next. In order to have a covenant, what do we need first? We need a covenant mediator. Well, that's the next chapter. That's of Christ, the mediator. And, and so in that eighth chapter, we, we see our Savior described for us as truly God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the very the, the being very and eternal God, the brightness of his Father's glory of one substance and equal with him, who is the maker of the world and the governor of all things. This, this is our Lord Jesus. We also see that it's asserted, it's from the scriptures, is described that he had, this mediator has, has two natures, human and divine. He is one person, one mediator, but he has two natures, one human and one divine. And those, those two natures are, are joined together Without commingling, without composition, without transformation, he remains fully human and fully divine. And he takes upon this office of mediator as prophet, priest, and king. So this is foundational. We have, we have a covenant, we have a covenant mediator. Then chapter 9 gives to us, it's the chapter entitled, Of Free Will. And Dr. Renahan, I think, is helpful to describe this as the covenantal setting. The covenantal setting. We find man when he is first introduced to us in a state of grace, a state of innocency. I should not say state of grace, a state of innocency. Under a covenant of works, he had not yet sinned. But then we find man fallen. We're, we're, we're confronted with man who is in need of what? Of covenant grace. He's in need of God graciously dealing with him. In Genesis chapter 3, when you see Adam and Eve, the first immediate effects of their sin, what do they do? They hide from God. They sit, first, they try to cover themselves. They, 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 took, they took leaves and made loincloths for themselves. They try to cover themselves, and then they hide from God. Because they knew. They, they were now aware of their nakedness. They were aware of their rebellion against God. And God seeks and finds Adam. Adam, where are you? And of course, it wasn't because God didn't know where he was. This wasn't a game of hide and seek. This wasn't where God had somehow lost track of them. But man was willfully trying to hide from God. Man is fallen, and now he needs covenantal grace. And what does God do? Number one, he confronts them in their sin. 
Adam, who told you you were naked? But you know the other thing that, that Adam or that God does for them? He sheds blood on their behalf. He kills an animal and he makes garments of, of animal skin for them. Symbolizing, one, what was justly due to them because of their sin. Their own blood should have been shed. That would, would have been just. But an animal died symbolically in their stead, and, and God covered them. He clothed them. So we see a picture of God's, a foretaste of God's covenantal grace. But then we also find in the scriptures, man's free will renewed. In the scriptures, we have, we, have, we have Adam, we have man presented to us in four states. First is a state of innocency, where Adam's will was free. It was free to do the will of God. It was free to obey God, but it was also mutable. It could change, and, and it did. Adam and Eve rebelled. Then we find man fallen. Adam, after his sin was fallen, he was unable to fix himself. He was unable to change himself. And he now, because of the fall, was predisposed to evil. He was predisposed to rebellion and enmity with God. And all of us were born into that state. Well, then the scriptures present to us a renewed state. The man, the woman who's born again, who has the Spirit of God breathing life. They've, 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 been, they've received God's effectual call. They've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own Son. They've given new life, and their, their wills are now renewed. Our wills are renewed. And we are able now, in Christ, by his Spirit, to choose that which is pleasing to God. Now, what's the problem still? We don't always choose what's pleasing to God. We still have a sin nature that remains. We have been renewed, we've been cleansed, we've been washed, and we are being sanctified, growing in, in our conformity to the very image of God in Christ, and yet we still rebel. We still fall short of his glory. So we find, uh, we find uh, man in his renewed state exercising covenantal grace. Then there's one fourth state of man that the scriptures reveal to us. What's the fourth state? Glorified. That's what we're looking forward to. The fourth state of man. Now, what, what can we say about the free will of man in glory? It's, it's immutable. It's perfected. That, that will will only do that which is pleasing to God and without even the possibility of falling. So we are not simply endeavoring and laboring and striving to get back to the garden and back to Adam's state of innocency. We want to, we are promised something far better than what Adam knew. Adam had fellowship with God, but it could be undone by his own actions, and it was. We look forward, saints, to a day when we will enjoy fellowship with our Creator face to face. There will no longer be a gap between us, no longer be a, a, a chasm that will exist. We will behold our Savior face to face. We will dine with Him. We, we will sing. He will sing over us. We will enjoy a perfect fellowship with him with no threat, no cause to doubt, no, no possibility of us messing it up. That, that's the state of man that we, we long for and what has been promised to every true child of God. So we have the covenant setting is free will. We have man's will as it was created. We have man's will in need of covenantal grace. We have man's will renewed. 
and we have man's will in glory perfected. The full recipient, the full beneficiary of covenant grace. Save your outline, because we're not going to get through this today. But I do want to finish section two. I think we can do that. Then we have, beginning in chapters 10 through 13, we have covenant blessings. So, because, now think about this, back in chapter 3, because the distance between the creature and the creator was so big, there was, there was of necessity a voluntary condescension on God's part. And God made a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. So in that covenant with God made with Adam, who moved first? Who initiated that covenant? God did. Absolutely, God did. The creature was incapable of doing that. The creature was, un, was incapable of reaching up to God. God, in a sense, had to descend to Adam. So covenantally what we see, and it's reflected in the, in the outline and the structure of our confession, is that God moves first. And so what we find, first of all, are what... what Dr. Renanhan is called covenant blessings. This is God's work in the covenant. And so chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are, deal with effectual calling. That those who are elect, that's looking back to chapter 3 on the, God's decree, those whom God has chosen, elected from all of eternity, God is pleased. It is appointed time and is accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. So the first, the first activity with respect to God's covenant relationship with man is for God effectually to call according to his eternal decree. Then as a result of that, as a result of that effectual call, God justifies. So again, here's God's action. God justifies and declares righteous. That's chapter 11. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. Now what is that statement refuting? Roman Catholic doctrine, that grace is, is infused, and by virtue of that grace growing in you and growing in you, that eventually, maybe, you hope, you are declared righteous in God's sight. But, but our confession explicitly says that's not the case, that God freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. See, this is a judicial act of God. The heavenly gavel turn, comes down and says, this one is righteous before me. Not for or according to anything wrought in them or produced in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. So we are justified not because of anything that we do or even anything that God does in us. We're not justified on those grounds. We are justified on the grounds of Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. See, faith is not 
our righteousness. It's, it's the instrument of our justification. We are not declared, declared righteous um, by a certain measure of faith or by us working our faith, but it is the empty hand of faith that receives the gift of justification. but rather by imputing Christ's active obedience into the, under the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. So you see, see what, what the confession is saying here is something that we, we must grab hold of in our minds and cling tightly to this. And, and this is the great comfort of our faith, is that when we come to faith in Christ, when we are justified, we are at that moment as justified as we will ever be. You will never, even as, you're, as you grow in holiness and righteousness before God, you will never be more justified than you are the moment that the Spirit of God creates in you new life. At that moment, you are, on the one hand, declared righteous by God and all of your sins are pardoned. That's, 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 the, that's the heads of the coin. The tails of the coin is that also, in addition to that, the full measure of Christ's active and passive obedience is credited, imputed to you. So that means if you are in Christ, you will never be more righteous than you are right this very moment. Now you will grow in sanctification, and that's we'll get that here in just a moment. But in terms of your standing before God, this is, this is really, really, really good news, brothers and sisters. Your, your standing before God does not go up and down. You, your standing before God is not like a stock ticker, which, which it has upward trends and then it has downward trends. Your standing before God is based solely and completely upon your justification, which is based solely and completely upon the finished work of Christ alone and nothing else. So this is the covenant blessing to you, is an effectual calling. A covenant blessing to you is that you are justified according to the merits of Christ alone. Nothing in you, nothing that, that was in you before or nothing that's produced in you after God has saved you is the basis of your justification. None of those things are the basis of your justification. Only the atoning work of Christ, his pardon and cleansing of your sin, and the imputation of his perfect righteousness. That's good news. And see, all the other religions in the world, and, and unfortunately some sects of Christianity, teach that you have to sort of climb the holy mountain yourself. God will help you. This is the Roman Catholic doctrine, that God will give you the grace to climb but you only are justified if you reach the top of the mountain. If you don't quite reach the top before you die, then there's purgatory, and you can kind of in purgatory work your way the rest of the way up. The third covenantal blessing that's articulated here is in chapter 12. I think it's an, it's an underrepresented doctrine in the Christian faith. It's our doctrine of adoption. This is a covenantal blessing. Is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are made children of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And it says in paragraph 1, all, all those that are justified, God vouchsafed in 
and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Every time I read that, all I can think about is the, or the first thing I think about is the parable of the prodigal, who had, who had spent his, his inheritance. What he, you know, the parallel there is what by, by nature we all receive. We are created in the image of God, and we've squandered that inheritance. We've gone and lived a prodigal life. We, we've spent it on everything that's unholy and unrighteous. And yet God in his grace causes us by his spirit, effectually to call us, to cause us to come to our senses. And the picture that Jesus gives of the, of the father in that parable is one who sees his son coming afar off and runs to him. Clothes him with, with his own robe, puts a ring on his finger, calls him a son. Prepares a feast with a fatted calf and restores the inheritance that he had squandered. That's adoption. And then the, the fourth covenantal blessing that's listed here, again, these are God's activities first, is sanctification. Sometimes we think that, okay, God has saved us, now the sanctification part is my job. And there's no doubt that, that we, we, are, we are urged in the scriptures to labor, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, uh, to, to, to strive to make our calling and election sure. But sanctification is an evangelical grace. It means it's a gift of God. And at the moment of our rebirth, we are sanctified. We are set apart once for all time as holy to God. And then we are by farther steps. We are further sanctified as we grow in conformity to the image of God. But that's the covenant blessings. So when you look at chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 in our confession... These are, this is God's acts. But the covenant of grace also requires a response from man. Can you grab the extra handouts and just a couple more? <clears throat> and so we see in chapters 14 through 18 the response of men to God's covenant works. First is saving faith. Well, saving faith is a gift of God, but it's also a response. We are obligated to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't do any any violence whatsoever to our doctrines of grace or our Calvinism, whatever you want to call that, to say you must choose. You must accept this. You must obey the gospel to repent and believe. And, And, of course, you're only able to do that if God moves first, your effectual calling. But then you respond to that effectual call with saving grace. This is in chapter 14. And there's a specific reference there to the covenant of grace. Then repentance. And we're going to look at saving faith and repentance in the sermon today. And that these are the the right responses to God's initiating work. So these are covenant blessings and covenant graces. Have you ever thought about this? In in the order, if you just look at the table of contents in our, our confession, saving faith comes after Effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. 
shouldn't saving faith come before justification? I mean, isn't that actually the order of things? Because we are justified by faith. So what's the answer to that? The answer is how the confession is actually structured. It's structured uh, covenantally, not chronologically. So the confession is not seeking to tell us that effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification all take place before saving faith. What it's organized is according to God moves first, and then man responds. So chapters 10 through 13 are God's activity. God moves first with effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Man responds with saving faith, chapter 14. Repentance, chapter 15. Good works, chapter 16. Perseverance, chapter 17. And assurance, chapter 18. God gives to men these graces, and we respond accordingly. Then, chapters 19 and 20 are the means by which we receive this covenant. So again, these also, if we were thinking chronologically, law and gospel would also have to come before saving faith, right? Because we have to know something about the Bible. We have to know something about this this Christ in whom we believe in order for us to exercise saving faith, right? But again, it's not presenting things chronologically. It's presenting presenting things to us in a covenantal structure. So here's the means of receiving the covenant. First of all, by means of the law. And our confession articulates why the law is useful. It, it, It agrees with the other Reformed confessions in articulating three different uses of that law. One is is to show men, to show all societies in every place how men ought to conduct themselves. Also to convict sinners of their need for a Savior. To hold the perfect law up before them and, and for them to respond, I can't do that. I need someone to help me. And then the third use of the law is even for the Christian. Even for the Christian. The moral law is useful for us. It's useful for us to show us what what righteousness in in Christ actually looks like. So we we need to not listen to those, and there are a number of them in our day, even, even otherwise faithful men, true Christians, but who teach the law has no use for the Christian. And that's a misreading of the Scriptures. Uh, our, our confession clearly agrees with the other Reformed confessions that, that the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, the judicial laws given to national Israel, are all done away with. They are fulfilled in Christ. And yet the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, is perpetual. It's abiding. It, it's woven in the very fabric of creation. It's the works of that law are written on the heart of every man. He may suppress that truth and unrighteousness, but that doesn't mean it's not there. In fact, Paul builds his argument in Romans. He calls two witnesses against men to say, this is God is justified in condemning people to eternal damnation unless they repent, unless they believe the gospel. He, he, the first witness he calls is creation itself. Romans 1, the invisible attributes of God are plain to man. 
but they worship the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God has handed them over to their unrighteousness. That's the first witness that, that Paul calls is creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The second witness he calls is man's own conscience. This is in Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, Paul says, here's the second witness, because the law says two or more witnesses are required to establish a matter. Paul says, I'll, I'll give you the two. The second one is your own conscience. Even the Gentiles, when they do what the law requires without having the law, they testify to the fact that the law is written on their hearts. And then when they disobey the law that's written on their hearts, they also testify of their guilt before God. And then, of course, chapter 20. And this chapter is, is unique to the, the Baptist and congregational confessions. This was not in the Westminster. Not because the Baptists were disagreeing or, or adding some new doctrine, but they wanted to be much more clear. And so they added an entire chapter on the gospel, where the covenant of works is now broken. Adam, in his sin, broke the covenant of works. There is no way, there is no way for anyone to obey the law of God and thereby attain righteousness before him. Adam had that possibility. You and I do not. Adam had the possibility, but he failed. But the second Adam came. The Lord Jesus Christ came, and he did fulfill perfectly all of the law that was given to Adam. The entire covenant of works that was given through Moses, Jesus Christ fulfilled every jot and tittle, and therefore, as we are justified by faith, we, his full measure of righteousness is imputed to us. That's the gospel, is that the law was completely fulfilled by Christ. His perfection is now ours if we believe this gospel. So we'll pick up next week. We'll finish the second half of the outline because uh, we'll, we'll spend some time in this, this third section. I think it's particularly helpful for us to understand how the parts fit together. We think about God-centered living, freedom and boundaries. But I hope that you will, will kind of reflect upon the outline and particularly in that second section on the covenant and looking at how God moves first and here are the covenant blessings and then here's the covenantal responses. Here is, his, here is our duty. Here's the right response from God's people based on what God has done for us. So let's pray there, and we've got about 10 minutes before we begin our worship service. Oh God, our Father, we give you thanks for the mercy that we have received in your Son. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you that in Christ uh, we have the remission of our sins, we have a pardon and the cleansing of all of the unrighteousness that is in us, and also that you have through him, through his perfection, imputed to us all of his holiness, his righteousness, his active and passive obedience are now ours by faith. Lord, will you press these things upon our heart, cause us to rejoice at the good gift that you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with gratitude as we prepare ourselves to worship you and to give you praise this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.